The Outline, World Dispatch. It's Monday, December 25th, 2017. As Donald Trump would say, Merry Christmas. I'm Adrian Jeffries. This week, instead of our regular episodes, we're going to revisit some of our favorite stories from the year. So today, we have Aaron Edwards professing his love for the musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. And Derek Ayo takes a trip to the wizarding world of Harry Potter. And Raouya Kamir reminds us just how good Gordon Ramsay is at roasting. Here's the dispatch. Culture. This past September, the Broadway musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 closed after some casting controversies. But just before the lights went down for good, Aaron Edwards reflected on what the show brought to Broadway and how the Great Comet touched him. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 is the most musically innovative, energetic, diverse, beautiful pieces of theater and art in general that I have ever seen. There's a war going on out there somewhere And Andre isn't here It's been compared to Hamilton for its diverse cast and the way it bends conventions of musical theater. But unlike Hamilton, which has seen massive success, Comet is about to close. I will love you at The musical, which started its life in a tiny shoebox theater in New York back in 2012, will end its nine-month run on Broadway on September 3rd after poor ticket sales and a casting controversy contributed to its premature end. But instead of focusing on that, I want to focus on some of the things that I love about the show and what it brought to Broadway and theater in general, namely its music. The Great Comet was created by Dave Malloy. Oh, hello. Uh, I'm Dave Malloy. It's a very exciting today because we just got a bunch of Tony nominations. Who knew? Dave is this incredibly weird, eccentric, great composer. Twelve nominations for tonight for your exquisite work on Broadway. How are you feeling? Uh, we're, we're pretty over the moon. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> it's based on a slice of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. The show centers on a young Russian girl named Natasha who enters Moscow society while her fiancé, Andre, is off fighting at war. Natasha! Her story runs parallel to that of the rich, depressed, and eccentric Pierre, who questions and frequently laments his existence. The zest of life has vanished, only the skeleton remains unexpectedly vile. I used to be better, I used to be better, I used to be better. Their tale set the framework for the show, which explores themes of lust, love, friendship, betrayal, and coming of age. Certain sounds and moments encapsulate Comet's beauty and its chaos for me. Here's Dave Malloy talking about one of my favorites. Each character does have kind of like a, a style that they kind of bring with them. And then the fun part for me is then like, how do you weave all those things together? So like in, in, in the big techno scene in the duel. Oh yeah, I forgot there's techno and Russian folk music and classical and rock. There's a lot going on. I love it. The first thing that everyone sings at the duels is this theme, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then that theme comes back in the abduction when suddenly it's just a purely like Russian peasant song that's being sung out in the field. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
it's like fun for me to like harmonically and melodically like try to link all those worlds together. Malloy weaves different genres like the techno and the Russian folk in those songs into a fully realized piece of art. So another example of a cool thing that Malloy does with his music is Natasha just had a really awful experience with her future in-laws. So she goes outside and she looks up and she sees the moon. And she just sings this beautiful song to it about how much she misses Andre. First time I heard your voice Moonlight burst into the room After Natasha sings this really touching, beautiful song, Maria, her godmother, just bursts out of nowhere and kind of interrupts her and is like, we're about to go to this big show. And Maria is played by Grace McLean, who has this incredible voice and just belts this line that shocks everyone out of their comatose state after Natasha's just lulled them to sleep. The opera, the opera, stop mooning and moaning, we'll miss the curtain. Maria is Natasha's godmother, and she's described as strict yet kind, very loving, but also very passionate and a bit mean sometimes, but it comes from a place of love. And Grace McLean plays Maria in the Broadway cast. And there are several moments where Grace just kind of like erupts into fire and like makes everyone in the theater freak out. And one of my favorite ones is in a song called In My House, where she stops uh, Anatole, who is Natasha's kind of side piece thing from stealing her away. Now you listen to me when I speak to you! In my house, in my house! Do you hear what I'm saying or not? One thing that I think is really cool about how Dave does his orchestrations in general is that he never wastes space uh, for other things to be happening while people are singing. So in this particular section of A Call to Pierre, which is a song where Maria goes to Pierre for help when all comes crashing down, uh, the ensemble is singing these really gentle, like, ahahas in the background that sound very sinister and add to this tension that the song is building up. Grace McLean, who plays Maria, does these incredibly high notes in this place in her voice that just sounds like she's erupting into, like, volcanic fire. It's, it's incredible to hear live. One thing that I really love is there's a very gentle piano line that the music director is playing that mirrors Anatole's uh, lines exactly. Listen very closely. I have long wished to have this happiness ever since the Norrishkin's ball. Which is very cool to see because he's kind of singing in this very syncopated rhythm. It's just, you know, kind of free form. And the music director is following him almost exactly to a T. Last week, Semenova fell down. It's very cool to hear. A lot of the show, since it was produced in a very small theater with a very experimental troupe of actors, a lot of the songs were written for people who were in the show from the beginning. In the first workshop, like I had some sense of who Anatole was, and then once Lucas came in and I got, got to know him and his voice, then I was like, oh, now I really know who Anatole is. Lucas's last line uh, to Petersburg, Dave wrote that as a joke. Next day, Anatole left. <laughs> and then Lucas sang it, like fucking nailed it. For Petersburg! 
So that became this defining moment, but it was really just like, I have no idea how to exit this character. <laughs> well, comrades, we've had our fun. I've brought about 15 people to come see the show. Each time I went back to the show, I was always looking at my friends' faces as they would see certain moments. It's kind of like watching a movie that you love with someone for the first time. Like you just look for like the twinkle in their eye when they see something interesting. This show was, you know, the first show in a very long time that I felt this way about. Goodbye, my gypsy love. The show is obviously closing, but I think that it had a really important moment for Broadway because there's just so much diversity in the cast and, and the crew, not only through the way this cast looks, but also just in the way they make music. So when that comes together, it really makes something beautiful. And people are in New York and they do have time to see it. You should definitely catch it before it closes on September 3rd. And if you're not, you can still experience this show in a pretty visceral and amazing way on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you can buy music and albums. Just look for The Great Comet and listen to this amazing show. Culture. We're gonna go to the, actually right to where the dragon is. We're gonna go ride that first, hopefully, depending on how long the line is. The sign said that the wait for the train from Diagon Alley to Hogsmeade was gonna take 110 minutes. I said to my friend, I can't do this. I broke from our group to take the 20 minute walk through Universal City Walk, the theme park's massive retail center, instead. On the other side, I was waiting in line to scan my ticket when the family of six in front of me filtered out. After a long wait, their entry was denied. Something to do with their day passes. This is the biggest fucking waste of time, the father said, pushing a stroller. His partner and three other children, all dressed in blue Slytherin merchandise, followed dejectedly behind. I couldn't help but agree with this exhausted, angry man. As much as they advertise as places where families can have good, wholesome fun together, Major amusement parks test the limits of familial bonds and unconditional love. I just smelled weed. Same. <laughs> I knew Universal Studios' wizarding world of Harry Potter would be styled after the spooky whimsy that dictates the books. By the way, I've only read five of them. And I knew that as a theme park unenthusiast, I would be enjoying the people I was with, not necessarily the parks themselves. Okay, okay yeah, we are in Harry Potter world. Oh my goodness. Oh my god! When one of my dearest, oldest friends invited me on a group trip to celebrate our birthdays at Disney World and Universal Studios, I was hesitant. I was worried I would ruin the trip for her and her friends. But there was no way I was going to give up this chance to spend time with her after so long living on opposite sides of the country. Initial observations, like I've always felt, amusement parks are hell, there's too many people, everyone's bumping into you. Everything's loud, like this loud-ass music. It's hot because we're in fucking Florida. The wizarding world of Harry Potter, commonly referred to as Harry Potter World, is filled with visibly distinct groups bumping against one another as they vie to enter the souvenir shops, line up for rides, or take photos in front of a giant fire-breathing dragon perched on top of the Gringotts Bank. In the end, my nosy side saved me, because all day I could watch family and friend units in different stages of breakdown and strengthening. As a family dressed in matching robes with wands in hand walked by, I thought, wow, 
these people are really intense. I'm like impressed at people who are wearing robes today because it's oh, fucking hot. They do it in the middle of the summer. Yeah. I... It took me a second to remember that I was wearing a custom designed bodysuit that identified me as part of a group of my own friends. We were each different kinds of candy from the Harry Potter universe. I was a package of ice mice. As we expected, there are kids everywhere. They are jumping. They are swinging. They are sneezing without covering their mouths. No one's being too cool for school here. Everyone is just geeking out. I keep seeing all these Harry Potter shirts being like, wow, people really fucking love Harry Potter. In nearly every dark corner of Harry Potter World's winding lanes were lone adults sitting on the ground to grab a temporary seat. At one shop selling apparel for each Hogwarts house, a child around 12 years old pleaded with her parent to let her get what sounded like her second Gryffindor scarf. Outside, a group of three 20-something tourists waited outside a wand shop, looking eager to move on to the next site. Another member of their crew, no doubt inside trying to decide between a model of wand owned by Fred Weasley and another owned by his twin brother George, was at risk of getting left behind. All around me were parents, siblings, and friends on the verge of exploding, reddened by the unseasonably strong sun and their own internal rage. So many faces silently expressing, we're here to have fun, damn it, so let's do it the way I know is best. Thank you for selecting all of that. Please make way for our chosen wizard. She's the chosen wizard, y'all. It wasn't all bad. Some groups were really keeping it together, like the family with children dressed in Hogwarts robes I saw later in the day at one of the park's restaurants. All excitedly talking about what ride to go on next, Escape from Gringotts or the Flight of the Hippogriff. They all arrived at the parks the same way, smiling, excited, united. But the parking lot scene at the end of the day offered more insight into the experience than any staged family photo could. Matching tribes trickled out of the park, children passed out in their strollers dressed exactly like the enduring parents pushing them. A couple with their newlywed status emblazoned on their chests emerged from the gates, one with bags of souvenirs in each arm, the other empty-handed. But I was part of this horde too. At Hogsmeade, at our last stop at the parks, I was buying a beer at a pub when I spotted a man with a Quidditch team captain shirt ducking into an alleyway with a child's backpack clutched to his chest looking at a dad right now who clearly abandoned his kids to get a quiet moment and I feel him so hard. I thought, wow, some groups really don't know how to stick together. The man seemed to be catching his first breath in hours. I paid the clerk for my beer and took a long sip before stepping back out into the crush of people. I had to find the group of friends I had abandoned before it was time to leave. As much as I loved watching the chaos around me, it was ultimately them that I was here for. We're in Harry Potter world. Mission accomplished. And Derek Gallo is a staff writer here at The Outline. Culture. Gordon Ramsay is holding up a slice of white bread to either side of a woman's head. Both of them are dressed in chef's whites. What are you? An idiot sandwich. Idiot sandwich what? An idiot sandwich, Chef Ramsay. I first saw that exchange floating around online in the form of a captioned GIF. It wasn't until months later that I realized the clip was actually taken from Hell's Cafeteria, a parody sketch that aired on James Corden's Late Late Show. Hell's Cafeteria. 
But Gordon Ramsay has regularly gone to such extreme lengths to humiliate contestants on shows like Hell's Kitchen that even this seemed realistic to me. Where's the lamb sauce? Come on, man. I just need a... This the lamb Where's the lamb sauce? sauce? More recently, on Twitter, Gordon Ramsay's been dragging users' struggle plates. In response to a photo of one user's chicken, he said, quote, You're supposed to roast the chicken, not take it to the crematorium. To another who'd sent in a picture of a poached egg in a bowl of noodle soup, he said, quote, Looks like toxic scum on a stagnant pool. To yet another who'd asked for feedback on some empanadas, all he could muster up was sad. It's hard to tell how many people, if any, are participating earnestly. What is clear is that people enjoy being roasted by Ramsey and watching strangers get roasted by him, too. Some of the qualities Ramsey demonstrates are ones that we're taught to seek in ourselves, for better or worse. Perfectionism and hard work as a panacea. Ramsey's biography is aspirational. He was a soccer star derailed by an injury who had to fight his way from a council estate to culinary school. He battled his way through multiple renowned kitchens to earn and maintain several Michelin stars. Ramsey, an outsider from the Midlands, got a job as a line chef and somehow turned that into an empire. In the years since then, he's become synonymous with one-liners that are borderline verbally abusive. Bobby, yes. I'm looking for someone to take control of this disgusting, embarrassing mess. He doesn't give a fuck. He's dreaming. He's standing there pissed his pants looking for his tartar, caviar, white chocolate crap. And he's just running around like a toilet brush. Is anyone going to take control? Many of these clips come from Hell's Kitchen, on which a dozen amateur cooks and professionals must compete for a job running a big-name kitchen. The show's been criticized for Ramsey's persona and for what has been alleged as an inaccurate portrayal of professional kitchens and restaurant hierarchies. But outside of Hell's Kitchen, Ramsey deploys multiple personalities. On Kitchen Nightmares, the now-defunct show where he intervened to help struggling restaurants, he plays a role that one desperate restaurateur described as White Oprah. You showed me tonight that each and every one of you has got the capabilities to turn this around. But you, madam, you're going to explode. I believe in you. Now believe in yourself. On MasterChef, he's gentle and patient with contestants. It makes me feel homesick. Oh, does it? Yes, it does. And on Late Night TV, he's a charming culmination of all of the above. Witty, lovable, able to laugh at himself. Jimmy, you've got to put a little bit of effort into it. Food I'm sorry, I'm effort. putting effort into it. Stop being lazy, let's go. <laughs> right. Right. It must be fun to be married to you. <laughs> Yet it's still Ramsey's dickishness that seems to attract people the most. In an era where brash talk is all around us and becoming increasingly normalized as a style of communication, Ramsey perhaps feels like a welcome contrast. His roasts are self-aware, entertaining, and ultimately harmless. It's just food, after all. And Ramsey knows it, too. Perhaps because he learned, rather than inherited, his affinity for fine dining, he doesn't seem to have the precious, pretentious approach to food so many others working at his level do. And he acknowledges that regular people eat regular things. He may be a dick, but he's a benevolent dick. For now. That's it for today. Remember, you can hear more stories like these every Monday through Thursday morning. You can find The World Dispatch in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Or just go to theoutline.com slash podcasts for direct links. If you're celebrating today, have a Merry Christmas. 
I'm Adrian Jeffries. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more of our favorite stories. <laughs>